Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you, to see you, to worship with you this morning. Today we are continuing in our uh, study of the book of James, James in Real Life. And we have subtitled the sermon series In Real Life because the book of James is very practical. You'll be able to take the implications of our sermon text this morning, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and begin to immediately apply these lessons to your life today. We're going to talk a bit more about that as we begin to close this sermon. But so far, we've gotten practical in this series about how to avoid bitterness, how to flee temptation. Last week, we got practical about how to study God's Word. And this morning, we're going to focus on how not to play favorites. Now, instinctively, we know that we are not supposed to play favorites. When we send our children off to school, we teach them lessons like this. But if we're honest, we do it all of the time. The reality is that many of the favorites that we have are benign. Like my favorite shore is the Jersey Shore. Does anybody have any, any support out here? A lot of support out here for the Jersey Shore. Now, I have to admit, I've never been to any of the Delaware beaches to compare. Because none of you have invited me. Another one of my favorites is my favorite holiday is Christmas. I love Christmas. Some Christmas fans out there? Yes. Personally, I think that Christmas should be everybody's favorite holiday. My wife tries to tell me that her favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. And I'm like, your favorite holiday is not Thanksgiving. You don't know what you're talking I don't believe it. My favorite food is Italian. Any Italian fans out here? I actually think that this isn't even close. Italian food is by far the best food on the planet. It's not the healthiest, but it is the best. Now, these favorites are fine, right? They are benign. They're not what James is trying to address here. You see, church family, what isn't benign is when we play favorites when it comes to people. And that's what James is going to address in our sermon text this morning. So far in our study of James, we've mainly looked at the real-life trials, tests, and troubles that God wants to help us through. What's going to be highlighted today in our text is the truth that God wants us to help others too. He really wants us to think about how we treat people. It is important how Christians treat people. Particularly how a person's social or economic status might affect our view of them, our treatment of them, but most importantly, our ministry to them. And so while it might be okay to have a favorite shore destination, a favorite food, um, or a favorite holiday, when it comes to people, God's word says no favorites. Now this principle is difficult to apply evenly across one's life. And so as we begin this morning, we're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to come to guide our hearts in Christ Jesus, our Lord, this morning. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this place. We invite you into our hearts. Father, we invite you into our lives to shake things up and rearrange some of our priorities or our perspectives to align with that of our Savior. Lord, none of us here want to live out of step with your will for us. We want your word to light up our path and for us to go where you go, to think how you think, Lord. So as we look into this word, as we may feel conviction, 
but by your Holy Spirit, soften our hearts to hear what we need to hear this morning from your word. Lord, we also have to pray for the Holy Land. Lord, we pray that you will guide leaders. Lord, we pray that you will protect the innocent. We pray that your sovereign hand will move in such a way that your will be done in this earth. We love you, Lord. We give you these things. In Christ's name, amen. If you haven't done so already, please open your Bibles or your Bible apps to James chapter 2. We're starting in verse 1. We're going to read through this text together. Verse 1, James says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And then he gives an example. He says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man, filthy old clothes, comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing flying clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I'm going to pause there. So James is calling Christians to not show favoritism. And so that we're all clear, favoritism from this perspective is a form of a basis of discrimination in which someone demonstrates a preference or gives a preferential treatment to a particular person or a group of people, oftentimes based on their personal feelings about them or relationships that they might have with them or other factors unrelated to merit or objective criteria. No partiality, that phrase in the Greek, no partiality, is literally translated without respect to face. Do not judge someone or show favoritism with respect to facial or external characteristics. This Greek word is not found anywhere else in the Bible or Greek literature for that matter. As far as we can tell, James made this word up. He may have created a word for this epistle to communicate a truth that the church needs to hear. And what this means is that Christianity brought this unique concept to our world. It was virtually unknown in the ancient world, this idea of not having partiality for people based on their external characteristics. This is the goodness of the gospel coming into culture. They didn't even have a word for what James is commanding Christians to do here. So we can tell that James feels strongly about this. He communicates this strongly because no doubt there were people within the early church that engaged in sectarian favoritism. It seems that they were favoring people within the church based on these external features and characteristics instead of looking at the heart. Who were they in Christ? James knows the heart of Jesus And he knows it so well that his efforts here are warning us, believers, against straying from the heart of Christ. So James gives the example of someone who's coming into the church gathering dressed to the nines. They're looking important, appearing to have great wealth. And that person being treated far better than a person who shows up to church looking poor. The wealthy man is given the seat of honor while the poor man gets a seat on the floor. He doesn't even get a seat. There's no doubt throughout the history of mankind, people have operated this way. This is how our sinful hearts are geared to to operate, elevating those of wealth while diminishing those who are poor. 
And there are many reasons for this. But one of the main reasons is that we often think about our human relationships in terms of what can we get from the other person. As evidence of this, if you were to get a credible notice, a notification that was real, that Elon Musk wanted to set up a meeting with you because he had a business proposal that he wanted to talk to you about, most of you are going to make that meeting, right? Even if you don't like Elon Musk, even if you don't share his politics or care for his personality, you're going to move whatever was on your schedule in order to spend the time to make that meeting happen. Why? Because we know that Elon Musk has the potential to make us a life-changing offer. And so we would move whatever we had off of our schedule. We might even travel a long distance in order to make that meeting happen. But what about taking a meeting with someone who can't make us a life-changing offer? What about meeting with somebody and instead of being able to supply a need that we might have, instead, they're coming because they need something. You see, we aren't as eager, necessarily as eager, to move heaven and earth to make those meetings happen. And James's point here is that this type of thinking, this type of behavior cannot characterize Christian communities. He says here in verse 4, Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Meaning that discrimination was happening within this Christian community. Instead of being united and treating one another as equals, instead they were creating divisions that were based off of worldly factors. James is aware that the world is going to see Jesus Christ in and through us, that favoritism that sometimes can characterize our communities needs to end. Because you see, Jesus Christ, our Lord, would have met with anyone at any time, anywhere. He didn't care what they had to offer, what they were financially worth, because he knew that his father owned everything. And so Jesus was able to judge everyone evenly because in the final analysis, he knew that it didn't matter how finely clothed they were or how much money they had saved up in the bank or if they were the right racial or social class. Because in the end, everyone is created equal in the eyes of God. Jesus saw it that way. He lived it that way. He ministered that way. Friends, we begin to show favoritism to those within the church based off of external features or circumstances. James says that we become judges with evil thoughts. Now, it's important that we understand this, this judges with evil thoughts. This statement needs some unpacking. God's word has a lot to say about the nature of Christian behavior and attitudes. The scriptures talk a lot about the spiritual fruit that should, should accompany the life of the Christian. And so when we hold people within the church accountable to those standards, we are not judging them. Rather, we are highlighting what the true judge thinks, what he's laid out in his word. It would be irresponsible to not share in love what the true judge thinks. But what verse 4 is trying to speak to so when we focus on preferences, when we focus on opinion, racial, social status within the church, when we do this, we become judges with evil thoughts. 
This is because we're placing ourselves as the judge based on what we think, not what, what his word commands. This brings us to our first truth for this morning. Favoritism stifles the work of God in Christian communities. Favoritism stifles the work of God in Christian communities. You know, in Mark chapter 10, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, they come to Jesus and they ask him for a favor. You may remember this. They come and they ask to sit at his right and at his left in glory. James and John are asking Jesus to favor them, to favor them in future glory. And Jesus' response to this is that it isn't his place to grant these positions, but that they will go to whom they have been prepared for. He gives them a typical Jesus answer. But what's important here is what Jesus goes on to say. He tells his disciples in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 and 44, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You see, James and John were still thinking transactionally about their relationship with Jesus. How can I get him to favor me? What can I get out of this relationship in the future? And Jesus tried to reorient their thinking to stop thinking about what it's in, what's in it for them and to begin to see themselves as servants, as slaves to the greater cause. You see, church, favoritism stifles the work of God in Christian communities because it takes the focus off of us looking at ourselves through servants' eyes, and instead it focuses us on what will benefit me, what will make me comfortable, what will get me what I want in the end or where I want to go. And that is not the heart of Christianity at all. You see, what Christianity is, is meaningfully connecting with people who come from different backgrounds than you. What Christianity is, is breaking bread with people who may have a different political opinion than you. Having coffee with someone who has a completely different social status than you, an income level than you. What Christianity is, is ministering side by side with someone who shares little in common with you, but you are as thick as thieves because you have been redeemed by the same Savior. Your soul knows that same peace and that same joy because Jesus Christ transcends every dividing line that Satan tries to use to isolate us. Now make no mistake, the reason why the early church was struggling with this and why churches struggle with this today is because of our sin nature, but also the enemy does not want us to be united. He knows that if the church unites, if we drop that favoritism and love evenly across the plane, that we will gain traction that will continually revolutionize and change the entire world. Satan does not want us to operate that way. And James is trying to highlight this for the church. This is the church, the vision of the church that James is calling them to be in our text. And this is the church that the Brandywine Valley, Wilmington, Delaware, needs us to be as well. You know, one of our core values here at Brandywine is unity in diversity. You may have heard us talk about this. So you've gone through our, our core values throughout the years, but it reads as, as such. Unity was made possible and commanded through Christ. 
Therefore, we will celebrate diversity and seek to make our church accessible and impacting for all generations, all cultures, colors, and faith backgrounds. We believe that favoritism is the trap of the enemy that will stifle the great work that God has for us to do here and now. But friends, as we unite under the banner of Christ, we become that most powerful force for good that this world has ever seen, the church. As we continue on in verse 5, James continues to unpack this argument for us. He says in verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor who are in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. You see, James is perplexed. He's really confused, dumbfounded, surprised by the behavior of those he is addressing here. He highlights the fact that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. And yet within their congregation, they are seemingly elevating the rich and diminishing the poor. James also mentions that the only people who are oppressing them are the wealthy. They drag them to court. They blaspheme the name of Christ. And so James doesn't understand the desire to bend over backwards to elevate people within the church who as a group are more hostile towards the gospel message. But I want to focus on verse 8 here. Because in verse 8, we see the crux of the matter. James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture to love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. The royal law is found in Leviticus 19. Jesus affirms this in Matthew chapter 22, but the implications of this are found all throughout Scripture. And the reason why it's called the royal law is because it's given to us by our king. Summarizing the core moral requirements that God has given us, that guide our behavior, loving one's neighbor as oneself encapsulate the principles of justice, compassion, social responsibility, and when you think about this royal law, to put this into practice, it sounds scary. It seems intimidating. Because to do this, we have to love others like we love ourselves, which means unconditional love, forgiveness, even compassion, empathy. And while most of us can muster these Christian virtues when necessary, we generally reserve this type of treatment for those whom we have decided deserve it. Meaning we can empathize with those whom we think deserve it. We can forgive those whom we think deserve it. We can have compassion on those whom we think deserve it. But that isn't what the royal law is asking of us. It's asking us to think of others and to treat them as if we were the ones in that situation, regardless of whether or not we think they are deserving. Because the truth is, who among us hasn't needed empathy? 
Who among us hasn't needed forgiveness? Who among us hasn't needed compassion? You see, favoritism within the church is us forgetting that we stand before God undeserving of his empathy, undeserving of his forgiveness, undeserving of his compassion on us. This brings us to our second truth for this morning. Favoritism defies the law of God to love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, if you found that the closer you are to someone, the more that you know of their story, their backstory, their family of origin, some of the struggles they may have, the easier it is to have mercy on them, to forgive them, to love them as yourself. I think a part of the reason why the royal law is sometimes hard to apply is because we haven't taken the time to get to know the other. One of the most popular idioms in the English language, we've all been told this by our parents, is you can't judge a book by its... How true this is. You have to open the pages. You have to look inside. You have to get to know the beginning, the middle, the end. A little while ago, I came across an article that was talking about a new reality dating show entitled, it's called Love is Blind. This show tries to test whether relationships can be successful based on an emotional connection rather than physical appearance. Couples are placed in separate rooms for a series of dates and they get to know each other without being able to see one another. That's why you see on the graphic, the dividing line, they can't see each other. They're going on dates. I don't even know how you're going on a date when you can't see somebody. I've not seen the show, but apparently that's what they do. The couple then gets, in, uh, then what it culminates with is an engagement. Then the engaged couple gets a month to spend face-to-face time together uh, before the marriage ceremony proves whether or not blind, a blind beginning can guarantee true love. Now, if you ask me, this show sounds pretty stupid, um, <laughs> but I, I hear it's pretty popular. And it makes you wonder, like, what type of a person would sign up to do this? It sounds, sounds like a, a train wreck. But the show's creator explains that the popularity of this show comes up at a time where social media and dating apps are so much focusing all of us on a person's outward appearance. It's, it's easy to say that we live in the time where outward appearance probably is focused on more than ever. This is what the, the people who created the show said, quote, Everyone wants to be loved for who they are on the inside. It doesn't matter where you live, what you look like, how old you are, what your background is, which class you know, or social structure you feel a part of. Everyone wants to be loved for who they are. Now, again, I've never seen this show before, but I imagine what everybody who watches this is tuning in for is to watch for that moment of the reveal, right? Because while you've been watching this show, there's a girl who's a solid 10. And she's been matched with a guy who's a three on a good day, right? <laughs> and we all know that, but she doesn't know it. So, so we're waiting to see. She's expecting Captain America to come around the corner. And out walks Homer Simpson, right? <laughs> and while the outward appearance matters, we need to be physically attracted to our spouse. 
Anyone who's been married for any length of time knows that there is so much more to who a person is than how they look or where they come from or how much money they make, right? And so in part, I guess what this show is trying to do is trying to limit a potential distraction that we have. So a person can be judged for who they really are on the inside. What James is trying to do in our text is to limit a distraction within the church. A distraction that has been caused by congregations choosing favorites based on external factors. As we move on in our text, James is going to make it very, very clear as he continues to warn us about the ramifications that will come upon those of us who continue with this practice. We read in verse 12, pick it up into verse 12. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What James is saying here is that as Christians, we no longer are under the law of bondage, but rather under the law of freedom. You see, friends, the law of Moses also required us to love our neighbor. But if we fail to do so, we were condemned if we failed. However, under grace, you and I have been given the power to love our neighbor through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we are rewarded when we do so. Therefore, we Christians do not love our neighbor in order to be saved. No, we do so because we are saved. It is an outworking of Christ in our lives. And when you and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will be rewarded or we will suffer loss according to this standard. James exhorts believers to speak and act, meaning that what we say should match what we do. Our walk should match our talk because talk is cheap. Anyone can say anything. But the proof that our faith has transformed our lives is when our lives continually through the process of sanctification shift and we act more, when we act more, and we act more like Jesus. The warning here is that believers should avoid partiality and do not heed that warning, we will miss out on blessings. Friends, we will miss out on blessings from the Lord. In verse 13, we see that just as love triumphs over prejudice and partiality, mercy triumphs over judgment. Family, it is, it is far better for you and I to be merciful than judgmental. Like if we have to err on one side or the other, you always want to err on the side of being merciful than judgmental. I think we all agree with this. But I must confess, if I am honest, I find it personally so much easier to be judgmental than I find it to be merciful. My heart is easily drawn to judgment, and I have to fight to be merciful like my Savior Jesus. What James suggests here isn't that we stop making judgment calls, because a person could take that from this text and was like, well, I can't say anything about anything then. That's not what James is saying. But rather that as Christians make judgment calls, we clothe it in mercy. We have mercy firmly in view because we know what great mercy has been given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This brings us to our third truth for this morning. Favoritism elevates judgment and it minimizes mercy. A man by the name of Peter Brown is a historical scholar. He did a massive study on wealth and poverty in ancient society and ancient cultures. And so he traces the radical shift in our society's view of the poor and the marginalized throughout the centuries. Brown writes that in the fourth and fifth century, quote, the poor were frequently seen to represent an extreme of the human condition. Persons teetering on the brink of destruction and condemned to the outer margins of society. This is a, and earlier in our past, the poor, and this was collectively across the globe, were viewed as others. Those people. Why would I talk to those people? But the good news of Christianity brought about a dramatic change, Brown writes. He says, the poor were not simply others, creatures to be tr- uh, trembled, trampled on the margins of society, asking to be saved by the wealthy. He says, now, because of Christianity... They were also brothers. They were also sisters. They had the right to cry out for justice in the face of oppression, along with all the other members of God's people. What Peter Brown is highlighting is that the world used to operate on just one axis, judgment. Judgment. And then as true Christianity, as our faith took root across time and culture, People move from being others to brothers, to sisters. This, friends, is what we have to offer a world that desperately needs to see this from us. This is how Jesus ministered throughout Judea, how he brought those who were far near. Well, let's go inward with James's words here. Because every single one of us, myself included, I'm, just, I'm in this just as much as anybody else. Every one of us needs to level up with regards to this teaching in real life, in our real lives. Because none of us have arrived when it comes to this. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that I asked myself as I'm sitting with James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 this week. As I'm wrestling with the personal implications on my own life of how I'm living and how I want to live, who I am and who I want to be. In what areas of your life is judgment triumphing over mercy? In what areas of your life is God calling you to ramp up the mercy in your life? And then the judgment that you do offer It is in view of God's great mercy in your life. In what areas of your life is judgment triumphing over mercy? How can we reorient that and bring that in line with our Savior? The second question is, what prejudice do you hold in your heart that keeps you from being more like Jesus? At the beginning of this sermon, I listed a bunch of things that I prefer, and they were stupid, and they don't matter. They're benign. But most of us have things in our hearts, prejudices that we hold 
that keep us from being more like Jesus, seeing others the same way that he saw them? What prejudice do you hold in your heart that keeps you from being more like Jesus? James' words here are aimed towards us being exactly that, more like our Savior, who loves everyone on a level playing field. And so how dare we, the church, receive his mercy in our lives and then treat others with anything less? I'm going to close with this. I have a pastor friend uh, back in Colorado where I used to pastor who painted the doors entering their worship center red. And he said that they did this because they wanted the doors of the sanctuary to symbolize the blood of Jesus. The idea behind it was that he wanted it to be clear that when the congregation comes in to the sanctuary, there are no favorites. We don't bring our appearance, we don't bring our accomplishments, our affluence, our, our ancestry, our good or our bad works, regardless of the status of our, our color of our skin or our past. Those doors were to represent the fact that we were all sinners in need of a savior. Church family, might our doors, might our doors communicate that same message to our community? May we be that type of church and may God get the glory from our lives lived in faith as we pursue Christ and to look more like him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are challenged by your word because to love our neighbor as ourself is a a concept that is all throughout the Bible, but so practically difficult to apply because our hearts are drawn to favor those who are like us, who, who fulfill our preconceived notions, our likes, our preferences. But Lord, may you reorient our heart continually to view this exactly the way that your son did. to show no favoritism, no partiality, to love deep, to mercy along with those who struggle because we have been shown so much mercy. Father, we're all probably convicted or or, or this hits us all in a bit of a different spot because this application is very broad and we're all unique people. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'll give us the courage and the vision to see how to practically apply this. That we won't give ourselves excuses or let ourselves off the hook. If we're introspective, we know how we might use this today. Lord, give us the courage to be those people, to walk like Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen.